Welcome to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. The hit cast offers a weekly look at Hollywood from a conservative point of view. Sick of media bias infecting Hollywood headlines? Tired of stars insulting your views? Hit has your back. Now, here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to episode 21 of the Hollywood and Toto podcast. This week's guest is movie producer and marketer Mark Joseph. Mark's insights into Hollywood and particularly stories of faith set him apart from his peers. But before our chat, I wanted to look back at one of the classic movie scenes of all time. It's the one that makes you think twice when you enter the shower every time. Of course, it's the shower sequence in Psycho, one of Alfred Hitchcock's most memorable moments, and that's saying something. But did you know that scene was problematic? The showrunner behind Bates Motel, which is the really good prequel to the Psycho franchise, recently talked about how that TV show is kind of caught up with the film franchise itself. And of course, that means the shower sequence. But the shower sequence is not going to appear like you think it would based on the classic film from 1960. There's been a change or two, and one of the changes involves Norman Bates. He's not dressed up like his mother, at least not in this particular sequence. Why? Well, that could be transphobic because you're showing a person who is dressed up in woman's gear killing someone. Now, of course, <laughs> you have to shake your head at things like that, both for kind of tr- trying to change history and also basically limiting what the stories that can be told these days. And, you know, it's not an isolated incident. Uh, just very recently, I read some really withering reviews of a movie called The Assignment. It's brand new to VOD from director Walter Hill, who gave us the uh, Warriors and also 48 Hours. So pretty good talent behind the scenes. Now, I got to say, The Assignment is not a good movie. It's about a hitman, a guy who's changed into a woman by an evil surgeon played by Sigourney Weaver. It's clunky. It tries to be kind of a grindhouse movie, but doesn't really get anywhere. And I pretty much trash it on my website, Hollywood and Toto. But a lot of other critics are trashing it, too, for different reasons. It's transphobic as well. Even though it's not really transphobic, it's actually much more nuanced than that, believe it or not, based on the subject matter. But the problem here is that both critics and some people behind the scenes in Hollywood, they want to limit the stories being told. They want to kind of put the brakes on if a subject gets too, well, I guess I'll use their word, problematic. Now, of course, the real problem here is that you should be able to make a movie that could be picturing someone who's a transgender in a negative light or a positive light or any kind of light. These are stories. They should be told. Now, if there was a crush of movies that were showing transgender people as killers and psychos and murderers, I can understand there'd be some trepidation about that. But I don't think that's the case. Frankly, it's a very, very small percentage of the population. It's a very small percentage of the stories being told. But this is something that just doesn't involve transgender issues. It involves other issues as well. When you think about the critics and what they say and what they don't say, and frankly, the way they've been harping on comedians in the last five or ten years It's kind of scary. You can't tell certain jokes without being called on the carpet. I mean, even Dave Chappelle, the Dave Chappelle, has been attacked in recent times for his new Netflix specials for not being sensitive enough. Well, Dave Chappelle is one of the comic geniuses of our age. And frankly, he should be able to tell the jokes he wants to tell. The bottom line is being funny. Now, if he told an extraordinarily distasteful joke, a nasty joke, and it wasn't funny and people kind of fled the theater... I think he get the message he was on the wrong path, but that isn't the case. He's a superstar. And I, you know, this whole thing where comedians are held to a standard that maybe some politicians should be held to, it's just flat wrong. But it's a trend. It's going on. We'll report on it in the Hollywood Total podcast and the website as well. But I just want to give you 
just a sneak peek of what you won't see on Bates Motel this season. Now let's get to the hip tip of the week. Clint Eastwood's Trouble with the Curve is now available on the Netflix lineup. I always check that lineup each week. I'm just kind of curious what new shows, what new movies are on there. It just seems like kind of a big deal when a series or a movie that I'm kind of curious to see or at least revisit is on that particular service. It just feels, you know, you pay one flat free and you get whatever you want. Now, this one matters for a couple of reasons. One, this could be Clint's last big screen appearance. Now, I don't want to sound too somber, but he's in his late 80s. He doesn't act that much anymore. He's still going strong behind the scenes, witness the excellent Sully from last year, but he's much more picky about his on-screen performances these days. So if you get a chance, check this out. It's a story about an aging scout who, well, his eyesight's failing and maybe some of his other faculties aren't what they should be, but he still wants to do a good job and he's aided with an awkward situation with his daughter played by Amy Adams. They've got a strained relationship, but they may actually get to know each other a little bit better as he does maybe one last tour to help out the big league team. Trouble with the curve, it's Clint Eastwood, Back on the big screen, will we see him again making a movie like this? I don't know, but boy, check it out. It's good stuff. Besides, baseball's here, spring training's over, play ball. Now let's get to this week's interview. Mark Joseph started his own entertainment company in his early 20s, and he's been on the forefront of media ever since. He helped bring movies like The Passion of the Christ, Ray, and The Chronicles of Narnia to the big screen. More recently, he worked in the underrated Jerry Lewis feature Max Rose, which, frankly, is also on Netflix right now. Mark's a marketer, an author, and a visionary who's currently prepping a big-screen biography of President Ronald Reagan. I can't wait for that. Here's my chat with Mark Joseph. Well, first of all, I, you know, from what I understand, you grew up in Japan and that you came to the United States as a young man for college. Is that correct? And uh, t- talk a little bit of sort of those, those early years, and did you have the media career that you have now in mind at the time? Yeah, I was uh, I was born and raised in Japan. I lived there for most of the first 18 years of my life. And, uh, you know, Japan is a hyper-media culture, maybe even more than the U.S. Um, in fact, uh, you know, I first realized the trend of texting in Japan about 15 or 20 years ago. And I remember looking at people in the train texting. Everybody is texting, the entire train. <laughs> I thought to myself, this will never catch on in the States because we're all driving cars. So logical, logical thought. But, of course, I never imagined we would all be trying to drive and text at the same time. (laughs) But they're just often very much ahead of us in terms of media. And so I think I just was raised in this this media culture. And I was always interested in movies and TV and music. And, you know, uh, we listened to Armed Forces Radio in Japan. And so I got my uh, weekly dose of Casey Kasem, and uh, and then my parents were very uh, well-read, so our, our house was filled with every magazine you could imagine, Time, Newsweek, U.S. News and World Report, so I just was an avid consumer of media at a, at a very young age, and I think I, I decided early on that I wanted to do this, and um, I got my first job uh, as a radio, as an intern at a radio station in Japan when I was 13, and I uh, actually became, began writing, uh, my first real job was writing columns about, you know, American pop records and American oh. music for a Japanese magazine at 14. Wow. You know, it's funny, I interviewed uh, years ago, I did a story about millionaires. I'm not asking your fiscal situation, but a lot of the millionaires I spoke to said that they were entrepreneurs at a very early age. So here you are at a very early age, kind of getting your, your toe in the water of media. So pretty interesting. Uh Talk. You did you start MGM Entertainment as a fairly young man, and 
What what was your aspirations at the time? I did. I had two partners at the time whose last names were uh, M, um, M and M, and so uh, we started it as MJM, and then uh, they went off and did other things. So I kept the name. Started it in we incorporated it in ninety one, but we really started it in eighty eight. Uh, man, that's a long time ago. Um, and I, the primary work I did in the early years of the company was we produced documentaries, uh, primarily for Japanese television. So uh, just out of college, the first several years of my life, I was producing documentaries, and then I moved to uh, hosting and um, being the, uh, what do you call it, the narrator uh, on screen for about 10 years. Um, so our companies really had a, a wide variety of things, starting in television production for documentaries and then moving into film in 2000, and then all along we did records as well. So. Uh, as you know, as these mediums begin to die out, uh, as music, for instance, we put out about mm, 110 records um, in overseas in Asia, American records. We distributed them, but as that began to die out, you know, film came along, and so we've kind of. Uh, I feel like our company and my work has been riding a wave, and the wave crests and it comes into shore. And I'm often resisting. I'm saying, wait, wait, wait. I I like that wave. I don't want to get off the music wave, and but I feel kind of pushed saying, okay, that's over, and now it's on to something else. And so that's kind of been our trajectory as a company. Gotcha. Uh, when it comes to your, your personal faith, has that always been kind of part and parcel of the work you do, or has that been more sort of uh, important as the years got on and you've gotten a little bit older? Um, no, I was always ra- I was, I was raised with you know a, a strong faith uh, through my parents, but as the old saying goes, God doesn't have any grandchildren, and so you have to figure it out for yourself. Uh-huh. Uh, but in terms of my work, you know, sometimes um, I mean, I try not to try not to do things that are against the things that I believe. But um, certainly there are movies that, you know, have nothing to do with overt uh, faith. And there are some that do. And so it's always a mix. And mm-hmm. and I'm all just intrigued by, you know, by, by great works of art. And um, so I, I look I look at it a bit in the reverse. So I. I don't think of it as people injecting their faith into things. I think that more of what I see in Hollywood is people trying really, really hard to keep out uh, religion, faith out of stories where it belongs. And I think that's kind of a weird thing to do. I think we should tell stories authentically. And um, a lot of the movies that I see, um, just to pick on one, the Johnny Cash movie, Walk the Line, great movie. But it took a lot of effort to keep Johnny's religion out of that story. And it takes a lot of intentional, direct effort. Um, I once wrote that Johnny Cash's great loves were uh, God, drugs, June, and rock and roll. And that that movie covered drugs, June, and rock and roll really well and didn't cover the fourth one. And so I think, if anything, I, I hope that I've had an impact over the years to try to say, let's not, you know, there's no reason to keep religion out of stories. It's part of the fabric of people's lives. And um, now, original religion can be divisive. I get it. You know, I understand why people want to keep it out, but I, I think we have to tell stories honestly. Mm-hmm. Well, through the years, you, you talked about how sort of your formative years, you were you were able to kind of predict trends, or or being in Japan, it was sort of a more forward culture. At this point now, I feel like the culture is changing so rapidly. I feel like uh, you know, media is changing. Where do you kind of look to? to kind of get a sense of where things are headed next? I mean, is it Twitter? Is it social media? Is it just sort of talking to people and finding out what they're working on? I'm just kind of curious, as someone in your industry, how do you kind of get a sense of what's the next big thing when often it's hard to predict? Yeah. Um, 
Well, first of all, I have my own instincts and my gut that I listen to. But then I often will have a feeling and then I will go out and in a very unscientific way uh, see if that's correct or not. And just to give you an example, last year on the Trump uh, phenomenon, um, I won nine dinners from friends and very smart friends who said Trump will never win. Uh, in fact, one of my smartest friends, I won two dinners off of him because <laughs> I, I told him Trump, Trump was going to win the primary, and then we doubled for the election. And so he <laughs> um, But that's a great example where I had kind of a gut feeling. Um, what it, as, a, as a storyteller, I'm always, when, when there's an election or something like that, I'm thinking which story is more compelling and interesting. And so, you know, there were two stories in that election. One is the kind of retread wife of the guy uh, who is being force-fed to, to the Democratic Party when they really wanted Bernie Sanders. Uh, and it just wasn't compelling. It's a 30-year-old, it's like a 30-year-old rerun, right? Mm -hmm. uh, versus this wild, you know, alfresco, al dante, whatever. He's just out there. He says whatever he thinks. And it's new. It's interesting. It's fresh. Like those two stories, as stories, one was going to win. Uh -huh. uh, but... So, so I felt that way, uh, but then I, I, I really would like to go out and I like to talk to cab drivers and really average people. Um, I really don't trust a lot of polling. I don't trust a lot of movie research that we do, that we have done because it's I, I'm cons I don't trust the sample who they are. But I know that when I go out and I talk to people flesh and blood and I know who they are. Uh, that's the sense that I get. So uh, during that Trump phenomenon, as I was thinking this myself, like I think maybe he's going to win. I'll never forget I was in my uh, in my uh, neighborhood going around for a jog, and there were two security guards here in California. And I just, you know, as I often do, was hey, you know, what's what's going on? And I asked him, what are you going to do about this election? And I think it was a black guy and a Hispanic guy, and they both said that they were voting for Trump. But not only that, but they had been Democrats who re-registered as Republicans so they could vote for Trump. Wow. And that was probably the moment where I thought, unless he screws this up, which he could, mm -hmm. uh, um, he's going to win this thing. If people like this, uh, who are not Republican voters by any stretch of the imagination. So um, so it's a combination. Um, now, sometimes I have a gut feeling and I go out and I, I sense exactly the opposite. So it, it's not a science. But um, you just you can't go wrong listening to people. That's that's I think what I've come to is we have a kind of cultural elitism among people like you and I and others, that we think we know better than people. But remember the old uh, the old show where you, you weren't sure what the answer was and you called for a lifeline? Yeah. And call a friend or, or pull the audience, that was the one. And the audience is usually pretty smart, you know? They're not dumb hicks uh, uh, from whatever city. They're, they're pretty smart and they know it. And in this case, uh, in the case of movies and entertainment, they they know what they want to see and they will tell you, but you have to really listen to them. Mm -hmm. When you think about Hollywood today, I mean, obviously it's reboots and sequels and brands and remakes and superhero films. Is that the tr is that the, the the main thrust of what we're expecting? Do you kind of sense something else, maybe lurking on the on the on the outskirts that maybe will kind of flare up in the next couple of years, or is it just exactly that? And that's what we want when we go to the movies. Yeah, I think remakes are always a safe bet. Um, I was always puzzled in, a in the political world why Kansas elected Kathleen Sebelius as governor when Kansas is fairly conservative and, and she was very progressive. Uh, I did a little deep digging and found out that her father-in-law was a prominent political figure in Kansas. 
So uh, Kansans were uh, trusted that last name. Mm-hmm. They didn't maybe know who she was, but they liked the last name. So we love sequels, right? George W. Bush is a sequel to George Bush. Um, so we, we, we love sequels because they're easy to understand, even if we don't like the content. I think a lot of Kansans didn't like Kathleen Sebelius's policies, but they just liked the sequel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's the cheap and easy thing for Hollywood to do is to do sequels, to remake 70s TV shows. But to me, it just shows a lack of imagination and the fact that we're not really uncovering great stories. And so I think the more we can really get to work, and there are still a lot of great stories to be told, but it takes it's a lot more work mm-hmm. to start a movie from scratch that has zero name identification for the, the person that the story is about or whatever. It's just a lot more work, and a lot of times we're just for the le- the path of least resistance, which is you know let's take the bad news bears and remake it again. So I think we we have to work harder to really avoid the sequels trap. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've written a lot. I, I was kind of googling you, and I know you wrote recently about the whole faith based movie label and how that can work against these films uh do you, you getting any sort of feedback from people in your space or an attaboy or no you're wrong i was kind of curious what, what kind of reaction because i i think you're onto something i think i think when people see that faith-based label there's a segment of the of the audience that just tunes out and that's often unfair because sometimes these films are quite good yeah I, I dealt with this years ago when I wrote about music, and it's the same phenomenon. Uh, but again, kind of the, the marketing path of least resistance, there's a feeling that if you call it something faith-based, well, you're guaranteed to get those people who go to church, you know, four times a week. But it really excludes everybody else. And uh, and I, I wrote in the piece that I'm so glad that Seinfeld wasn't marketed as a you know Jewish TV show and run on the Jewish TV network, because then the rest of us who weren't Jewish wouldn't have accessed it. And so there, there is a, I, I really do, um, I'm not a fan of, of this method of marketing because it really is exclusionary and it's not inviting. Uh, and yeah, have I gotten, sure, I get, I get comments and feedback. Nobody really, I think in our hearts, we all know that this is not the right way to go, but it's just, it's easy and it's less work. And, um, but it, it really is, you know, when an artist creates a work, no, very few artists that I know of set out to create a work and say, okay, I'm only making this, you know, for Italians in New York or whatever it might be. We really, we want, when we create a piece of work, we want it to be for everybody. Mm-hmm. And when marketing folks come in, the job of, of the marketing folks is to make that possible, to get it to as many people as possible. And so when you have marketing teams come in and really start segmenting and narrowing and saying, okay, this film is only for such and such people, um, it's it's really problematic. Now I know there are some natural limits. If you know if you're a horror fan, you, you like horror movies. I get it. Um, but there's a grave danger in in this way of saying, hey, this is a religious movie for religious people. I think back to Narnia, which I worked on, which you see probably see over my shoulder. Um, that was a good example of that film. Even though it wasn't perfect and it wasn't a, the greatest film ever, it was marketed. Uh, in kind of two ways, right? One was to tell a very devout C.S. Lewis Christian fans, uh, hey, here's a movie, uh, and, you know, that lion represents Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, for more secular fans, um, it's okay that they have a different interpretation that it's just a lion. And you don't have to browbeat people and say, don't you know who that lion is? Mm-hmm. You just say, here's a beautiful movie, and it's for everybody. And, and I, I think that's the way to go, and that's certainly what artists want. They want their work to be seen by as many people as possible. Gotcha. One of the projects you've been working on, which I'm so eager to kind of 
see it when it does come out is Reagan, the Reagan biopic. And I know there's a lot you can say about it, but can you talk a little bit about the project, what we might be able to expect, um, or even what your goals are, what you hope to accomplish? I mean, it's such a massive subject, and I, it's it's sort of like, my goodness, why hasn't Hollywood done this before? Because it's such it's such an important character in our history. Yeah, I'm so thankful that people in the town that I work in don't understand um, you know, how much Americans love him. But yeah, we've been at work for quite a while, as you know, and boy, I hope my movie doesn't take as long as Narnia and, uh, Unbroken and some of these movies took, cause I'll be an old man by then. But, um, you know, we've got a good chunk of time we put into it. We've had, uh, two great writers. Um, we've got a director on board now and we've made an offer to lead talent. Um, it's, it's definitely a challenge. It's been a, a, the most challenging project that I've been a, a part of. And um, there were times to have sh make shortcuts along the way to get it done more quickly. And I just, you know, this is the one that I'm holding out to do it right. Mm -hmm. And so we'll have financiers who will say, well, if you have so-and-so direct and so-and-so star, and, you know, I just shake my head because I'm like, that guy doesn't understand this work. And part of what I've learned, Christian, about this process is the whole way that, that movies are financed is really problematic for, for the way we make movies. Um, financing tends to be, um, because you know, a lot of finance, film financiers are kind of, are not really film aficionados, they're more numbers guys. And so they kind of have a formula where they say, person X just made X number of dollars on that last movie, so we can finance that person for your movie. Mm -hmm. And without any regard to whether he's right for the project or whether the fans would be upset or, you know, just all those kinds of factors. And so that's been a bit disheartening because I just can't, I can't make a movie that way where um, personnel are just there because of money. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, if I could, I would, but uh, I know that, you know, Reagan fans expect, have certain expectations and there's certain people they trust and don't trust uh, to deliver the story. Um, and I would just, as a, as a recent example, I'd give you the movie Silence by, um, by Martin Scorsese. Um, that film is a box office disaster. There's no way around it. And part of it was, you know, the Scorsese fans, I'm not sure they're getting up every morning going, I want to watch a movie about, uh, a, you know, persecution of Christians in Japan. <laughs> uh, now, religious fans absolutely don't trust Scorsese for a New York minute to deliver a story about religious persecution in Japan. So you end up with, with No Man's Land, where the film makes $6 million in change on a massive budget. Uh, so that's the, that's the kind of factor that I've, that I've really didn't understand before. Mm -hmm. um, and I understand finances. I'm not saying that's, that's not the right way, not a smart thing to do. But in our case, we really can't make those directorial and actor decisions based on a kind of the whims of a European financier uh, when there are a lot of other factors involved. Gotcha. If Michael Moore has a new movie out, the critical reception, the press treatment of it, will be uh, soft. It, it'll be sort of, oh, it's the new project for Michael Moore. And that's just the way it is. With the Reagan film, when it comes out, the, there could be hostility from the press. There's going to be an interesting sort of reception. Do you think about that? Do you plan to kind of maybe even use that for your benefit? Well, I'm kind of curious, thinking ahead as a marketer, because I, I just, I can anticipate that kind of reaction. Oh, it's going to be a puff piece, or, oh, you forgot about, about these flaws and that flaw. What What's... Do you, does it even concern you, or is it just going to happen and you'll just let the movie speak for itself? Yeah, we definitely think about those things. But, you know, first and foremost, I want to be faithful to the story. 
uh, warts and all. You know, this is not about um, this is not a puff piece. We don't want to just uh, because truthfully, a puff, puff piece isn't that interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to see the human struggle. You know, to watch Superman without Clark Kent is not very interesting. And um, and so it's been a challenge to find uh, those things because Reagan was a good guy. I mean, it's just no way around it. One of his biographers talked about how she had finally found a hotel clerk who said Reagan was rude to him. <laughs> and she was so excited, like, oh, finally, I found, you know, that he wasn't Mr. Perfect. And she said, well, what happened? And the guy said, well, the next morning he came out and apologized to me for his... <laughs> That's the kind of guy he was, yeah, right? Yeah, and So, but... So I think rather than like finding some dark, evil side of Reagan, what we've really come to, uh, that is the, the guts of the movie, is really that it wasn't that he was a bad guy, but that he found his calling late in life. Uh-huh. That he spent a great deal of his life not really reaching his potential. And so at, you know, at the age of roughly 50 or so, he's divorced, his career is in the tank, uh, he just doesn't know what he's going to do with himself, and he knows there's something. His mom always taught him that you know, something great is ahead for you. But he just he's, he's thinking, maybe I've missed it. And I think we all have that feeling in our lives at some point or another. So anyway, all that to say that I, I think, um, sure, will there be some criticism? You know, maybe. Um, and, and we'll take it head on. But uh, I, th- I think we're, we're on pretty solid ground that we're telling the story fairly and honestly and, and, and the warts and the good. And um, the warts make the good all the more interesting. Yeah. Well, here's a project I think you could talk more about because it's coming much sooner is your new book, Rock Gets Religion. What can you tell us about that? Is that coming out this late summer? Or what's the uh, release date? Yeah, it comes out nine, uh, September 19th. Um, oh. So back in, uh, when I was a young lad in uh, just out of college, I, I was beginning to work. I was in music, and I was uh, producing records and distributing them overseas. And I noticed that there was this you know, genre of what was called Christian, Christian music, Christian rock, that never got distributed. And I would listen to it, and I'd say, well, this is pretty good stuff. It sounds pretty much like what I'm hearing on mainstream radio, and yet it wasn't being distributed overseas. So as I began to put these records out overseas, uh, I would talk to the artists, and, and I was giving them careers in Asia that they didn't have here, which was in America, they were segmented as Christian rock and whatever, and in Japan, they were you know, in the mainstream rock section. And, and I thought to myself, well, why can't this be done in the States? And that was kind of the impetus for writing uh, the first book, which is called The Rock and Roll Rebellion. Uh, the subtitle was Why People of Faith Abandon Rock Music and Why They're Coming Back. And the second book, you know, four years later, was called rock, uh, Faith, God, and Rock and Roll. So this is kind of a sequel in the final, in the three-parter, uh, called Rock Gets Religion. The subtitle is The Battle for the Soul of the Devil's Music. And I got my cover from my publisher, and as soon as I got it, I said, I've got to ask Alice Cooper to write the forward. This is an Alice <laughs> This cover is has to have Alice Cooper on it. So I, I reached out, and uh, he was kind enough to write the foreword to it. But um, it's really the story over the last 25 years of how people of faith have settled into mainstream music. And they're so ubiquitous now that you don't even realize it. And um, even someone like a Justin Bieber, who you think is just a, a pop star, he's the kind of prototype for in the old days, uh, his devout Christian mother would have taken him to Nashville and signed him to a Christian record label. But in this new modern era where there's YouTube and things, he bypassed all that, went straight to a mainstream label, was discovered by Scooter Braun. And that story has happened dozens and dozens of times now. And so, believe it or not, you know, mainstream pop and rock is populated by a lot of uh, devout and not so devout, uh, primarily Christians. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so for every, um, you know, there's the Frey, there's Mumford and Sons, there's uh, uh, so many artists like that. And there are also artists like, you know, Katy Perry and, uh, uh, and Miley Cyrus and artists like that who are maybe not, uh, you know, every Sunday school teacher's dream of what their uh, protégés would become. But they still come from that background. They still have some of those sensibilities, even if they're not always showing them. And so uh, this would have been unthinkable in the 70s and 80s to have this kind of strong uh, Christian presence in mainstream pop and rock. And one of the factors, Christian, is American Idol had a significant impact uh, in that, uh, talking about kind of elitism earlier. Uh, So your pop and rock stars of the 60s, 70s, and 80s were primarily chosen by a handful of kind of elite pop and rock gods, Uh, people like Clive Davis. Uh, David Geffen, uh, people like that, uh, who would discover talent and then sign. The American Idol phenomenon completely upended that system of elite people picking our pop and rock stars for us. So you literally have now uh, basically a generation now of artists who were chosen by the people, uh, sometimes to the chagrin and the horror of the elite music uh, and rock, rock, pop and rock class of, uh, you know, people. Yeah. That's the, uh, a good deal of, of the last uh, 15 years. Carrie Underwood is an example. Absolutely. Uh, she would likely not have been chosen by the rock pop gurus to be a pop star. The people chose her. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, I had one last question. This is a question that, frankly, I want to ask to as many people as possible, and you certainly qualify just given your, your uh, sort of uh, ability to kind of understand the culture in the film industry, but also just the work you've done. I've been very critical of Hollywood in recent weeks at my website and via this podcast and about the sort of the hard politicization of the industry against Trump and not just against Trump, but also his voters as well. And I get the sense just from talking to people and you mentioned sort of on Twitter and things like that, that people are really angry in Hollywood, that there's sort of the, the love that we have for the industry, even if you're a conservative, you don't agree with their policies or their thinking it's 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 kind of soured in a way. And I, from your perspective, do you, do you think that there's there's a tipping point where we we get angry at these stars? It isn't just that they you know they campaign for Hillary, but they're it, it's taken it to a new level. And I kind of wonder. I talk to so many people say, oh, I'm I'm not going to see that star anymore. I'm not going to watch that movie. I'm not going to support that singer. Is is this just temporary, or is there kind of a real kind of fracture going on between Hollywood and its and the consumer? It's been happening for years, and you're only, I think, realizing it now because there's much more ability to communicate for people. Comment sections of, of stories. Um, I, I often, uh, I had a dinner or a lunch here in, in town maybe a, m- a couple of months back, and I was talking to you know one of the gold star Hollywood elites, and I was trying to explain to him, and he couldn't even receive it, uh, how much our business is hated by this country, literally hated. Not that they hate people, but they hate what has been done to them. Um, I'll never forget during the Passion of the Christ when we were screening the film for people, uh, I was in there for a screening in Mel's office one day. I produced the soundtrack, as you may know, and um, uh, the rather inspired by rock soundtrack. And one time a very respected Hollywood veteran came in who had worked with uh, at the top of, of, of the game in Hollywood, and he watched the film. And he said to Mel, this film will not make money in a theater, but I think you might make some money on DVD. So I would put it in theaters for free as long as we market for the DVD. And I remember telling him, uh, who was a guy that I knew very well, uh, I said, I don't think you understand 
the people in this country, they want to put $10 on that glass counter and say, screw you, Hollywood, for the last 50 years of what you've been forcing us to watch. We want stuff like this, and here's my 10 bucks. And we had a guy in Texas named Arch Bonima who bought $35,000 in passion tickets and gave them away to kids. So that's the kind of feeling. There is a feeling that anytime you suppress uh, people and their audience and their feelings and their desires for a long period of time, they get really angry. And so and I don't fault them, and they're not haters or anything. They're just they're not happy. They're unhappy consumers. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like that guy who was dragged off the United flight the other day. They're tired of it. They're tired of being mistreated, of having their values mocked and made fun of. And so, and I keep reminding my friends, like, we're in a business here. Like, this is not supposed to be an ideological enclave, right? This is not supposed to be a college campus where you have tenure and you can do whatever you want. We have to be responsive to our audience and to to constantly make movies that people hate and uh, give ourselves Academy Awards to make ourselves feel better when nobody's watching our movies. Last year, 23% of Americans did not go to the theater one time to watch a movie. I mean, that's a... That's a huge, huge number. I think the total is around 54%. They either watch nothing or maybe one to three movies a year. So what Hollywood thinks is the film-going business, film-goer, is really a small, small subset of most Americans for whom they've just checked out. And they're not interested because they don't trust us. They don't like what we make. They think our values are screwed up. And they've checked out. Yeah, it's a lot of money left on the table. Well, Mark, before I let you go, uh, the one question we always ask our guests at Hollywood and Toto is what are you watching now? What's on your nightstand? Maybe some music you're kind of checking out. Just kind of off the top of your head, what, what are you enjoying? It doesn't have to be new. could be something 20, 30 years old. But what are you kind of, uh, kind of enjoying right now that you can kind of share with uh, listeners? Yeah, I've been, just for the, for my, with my book, I've been really uh, researching and not researching, listening to a lot of uh, Chance the Rapper, um, mm-hmm. Kendrick Lamar. I'm really intrigued by this new generation of hip-hop artists who are really incorporating their faith. Uh, they've been influenced by people like Kirk Franklin and Lecrae. Uh, and, I mean, they're kind of rough around the edges. They're not like, you know, perfect choir boys. But I'm really intrigued by that. I think in in, in that particular instance, you know, 50 years ago or many years ago, uh, Sam Cooke cr- crossed over from gospel to pop, and he was kind of a, you know, thought of as a bad thing to do. And now it's fascinating to see African-Americans in particular trying to integrate their faith uh, into something like hip-hop and rap, which is not thought of as being uh, traditionally a religious area. So uh, that's, that's been interesting to me. But I, you know, I go back to my standards. I, I still am a sucker for a good Seinfeld episode. Um, we travel a lot, so I get to watch a ton of movies on planes. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, not, I'm kind of a late adopter for Netflix because I still am not crazy about watching movies on my computer, um, but I do have a, a, you know, a, a screening room in my office that I can project to now. So I'm starting to get a little bit more into Netflix. Um, so uh, you know, there's so much to watch and so little time. I have, I have a lot of kids, and I have to be careful uh, because uh, movies come and go. But you know, kids only have a childhood for a short amount of time, so. Um, I don't get to watch as much as I would like to. Gotcha. I, I'm in the same boat there. But uh, and my son is taking a hip-hop class, dance class. So I'll be kind of curious to hear, hear listen, some of the music he's listening to. Maybe he's uh, echoing some of the themes that you're talking about. But, uh, well, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. We will look forward to the movie, obviously, Reagan coming in the near future. And more, rec- and more uh, I guess, coming up in shorter time is your new book. And uh, we will 
I will have links to all of these things on the website as well, so you can check out all the ways to f kind of follow Mark. And uh, I've known Mark for a little while. He's a, a really good guy, and he's been very supportive of the site. So thanks, Mark, for all your time, and uh, we will check in down the road too. Thank you, Christian. Great all to right. be with you. Well, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out HollywoodandToto.com for both the show notes and, of course, the latest entertainment news. Please follow me at Twitter at HollywoodandToto. And we'd love it if you leave a podcast review over at iTunes. See you next week. You know what this is? A commercial? Right. And you know what that means. <sighs> Time for a snack? Wrong. I want you to do some heart-healthy exercise. Yes, you! Try some seated leg extensions right now. Just lift each leg up and extend it straight one at a time, six to eight times. I can do that. Yes, you can. Remember, every commercial is a chance to sneak in heart-healthy activity. Visit findexerciseanywhere.com and speak with your doctor to learn more about the risks of heart failure. Haverty's Furniture is here to help you get your home all set for the new year so you can set the stage with more style, set the bar more beautifully, and set a more show-stopping table. Let's set some time aside to settle in on a new sofa together because being at home shouldn't mean having to settle for less. And Haverty's Furniture can help you start the new year off right at their holiday savings event so you can create the perfect setting. And right now, everything's on sale store-wide. 